Colossians 1, 26 through 29 is where we find this mystery of the indwelling Christ. And so we want to look at this, and we're really going to break down this passage a little bit. And I went a couple verses further than I'd originally planned. You'll find out why as we get into this. So Paul says that there's this mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. We're starting with verse 26. But now has been revealed to his saints. So we've already covered this. That there was a mystery, it's been hidden, but now it's being revealed to who? Us, his saints. Okay, that's good. That saved me the second question. I was going to ask if anyone here was a saint, but make sure you understood that. It appears you do. All right. So he's revealed it to his saints, and then it says, to them, God willed to make known, he willed to make known to you and I this amazing mystery. What are the riches of the glory of this mystery? Now, that sounds like a pretty good mystery, that it is wealthy in glory. He's saying this mystery is just abounding, full of, wealthy, all kinds of glory is contained in this mystery. How many of you are interested in glory? All right, and I don't mean, you know, glory like uh, Hollywood. I mean glory like Jesus' glory. All right, good. So he says uh, he wanted to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery. Not only does he want to make it known to the saints, but it says here in verse 27, to make it known among the Gentiles. Understand what he's saying. I don't want you guys just to know about this. I want you to display this so that the nations see my glory in you guys, right? Okay, so we get that. And then he goes on to, in verse 27, what the mystery is. Here's the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is that good? Christ in you, the hope of glory. How many of you are actively, on a regular basis, aware that Christ is in you? How many of you does that make you walk around hoping you're going to see the glory of God come out of you? Okay, good. I was kind of hoping so. Because that's what this mystery is. Christ in you, the hope of the expression of His glory in you, coming out of you, right? So we need to get the whole, it's a two-part thing. It's not Christ in you so you're sealed and go to heaven. It's Christ in you so you can display the glory of God. Now, we've talked about him, uh, him revealing his glory and our call to imitate his glory, his goodness. Well, he's going, because Christ is in you, you actually can now have a hope of doing that. You can have a hope of revealing his glory. And then he goes on to say, and we'll cover these in a minute, verse 28 and 29, him we preach, Jesus, uh, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Anybody here interested in being perfect? That deserves some thought, doesn't it? How many of you, yeah, I'll, I'll ask it differently. Women, how many of you are married to the perfect man? There you go. Men? Perfect women sitting right next to you? Yeah? Yeah? All right. This perfect thing has a practical aspect to it. Okay. Anyway, so him, the, he, his desire is to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And he says, to this end, I also labor, 
striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Now, we really want to talk about this. I actually was just having this conversation last week after the word uh, with Jim Bartholomew. Um, we were talking about how in a word like this, it's so easy to hear, just try harder, just do better. Uh, imitate Christ, just try harder to imitate Christ. And of course, we know that's not what he's saying. And so it's interesting that we come to this passage where he says, Paul's saying, I labor, I strive, I'm trying harder to do what? Uh, well, I'm striving according to his working in me. What's that mean? What does it mean to strive according to his working? Well, we're going to talk about that because uh, uh, striving according to his working sounds way better than striving according to my working, doesn't it? All right, so let's begin to go through this. 27, verse 27 the hope of glory. What is the hope of glory? The indwelling Christ empowering us to imitate him, to imitate his goodness. It's just that. It's just the saying because Christ dwells in us, we can have hope that we can actually look like him. The Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that makes Jesus so awesome can make us awesome too. That's it. We have the hope of glory as he indwells us. Amen? And so we need to figure out how to lay hold of that uh, in case when we were doing the husband and wife thing, you weren't sure you were married to the perfect man or woman. Uh, we can work on that. And here's how. We're going to learn. All right. So I want to review a little bit of things we covered in John 14 because John 14 is where he talks about how uh, he's going to indwell us. And he talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit and so we're going to pull some verses out of that. It hasn't been that long that we went through John 14 and looked at this, so hopefully you'll remember. But in verse 2, uh, we see that Jesus says, I go to make a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to make, or many dwelling places. I go to make a place for you, a dwelling place for you. And we learned that what that meant was he was going to the cross. Remember on the cross, the veil was torn. Access was made to the Father to the Godhead, to the Trinity, so because Jesus paid for our sins. So he made a place for us to enter into a dwelling place in God. It's where we see those, those passages about being seated at uh, the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus, that we are accepted in the Beloved. He made, he says there's a dwelling place, there's lots of dwelling places in the Father, and through the cross, I'm going to make one for you. You can be in him. You can be in the Godhead. You can be accepted in the beloved. You guys remember us talking about that. So there's a dwelling place in God for us. And then a little bit later in that same chapter, in verses 21 through 23, we're going to look at these. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Somehow Jesus is going to show himself to us, right? Which was the whole point of him coming to model God so that we could know him and imitate him. And, and Judas, not Iscariot, uh, the good Judas, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now, this is a good question. Because up till now, we've been walking around with you for three years, and we see what you're like, but the world sees what you're like. Everybody sees what you're like. How are you going to show us what you're like, but not show the world what you're like? I don't understand. And he goes, well, here's how we're going to do it. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. It's going to be an internal manifestation of God. And of course, if we read on, we're going to find out that he's talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling spirit, Christ dwelling in us through his spirit. So now the first thing we see here is he says that we need to keep his commandments. Fortunately, his commandments, uh, in a nutshell, are pretty simple. Love him, love others, right? And remember, he upgraded that second one. We saw that in John 13. He said, don't just love like you love, imitate my love. Love others as I have loved you. A new commandment I give you. Love others as I have loved you. And so, here's basically what he's saying in this passage. If you love me and want to imitate my love and love others, you want to do my word, you want to do my will, the Father and I are going to love you. We're going to get so excited that we're going to come make a dwelling place in you. We're going to make a home with you. And the interesting thing it is is in John 14, 2, where he says there's a dwelling place in the Father, it's the exact same Greek word here where he says the Father and I are going to make a dwelling place in you. Dwelling place in the Father for us, dwelling place in us for God, right? Exact same word. And so what he's saying is, He's going to manifest himself to us by making a dwelling place in us. Now, we, we understood all that from John 14. We understand that now, right? So let's make sure we understand the implications of that. So what's going on here, the, the apostles could imitate Jesus because they walked around with him for three years. We can imitate Jesus because we can read the books uh, that the apostles wrote telling us about Jesus but there's more. There's an ongoing manifestation of God. We look in John 14, 26, where he talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit, part of his purpose is going to be to teach you and to remind you of the things that I've told you. So in other words, he's going, hey, apostles, uh, it's been cool that you've gotten to watch me for three years and Know me so you can imitate me, but I'm going to the Father. I'm going to put my spirit in you, and there's going to be an ongoing, continuing manifestation of me so you can continue to get to know me. The Holy Spirit's going to teach you things, and he's going to remind you things that I taught you. Now, not only is that happening, but this promise, we know, is to all who are far off who the Lord God will call. So we, right now, don't have to be limited to just reading the books. Because the Holy Spirit is in us, we can get to know the Father through His Spirit who dwells in us. We can get to know Jesus that way. So we need to see that this indwelling Christ is an ongoing manifestation. He's still trying to manifest Himself in us so that we can manifest Him in the earth, so we can get to know Him, so that we can imitate Him. Everybody follow that? Good enough. Now, Here's the really good part. Not only is the Holy Spirit here to manifest Christ in us, to help us, to understand, uh, to, to remind us, to teach us, He's here to empower us to actually imitate God. Let's look at this. Uh, and I put in your notes, He's here to empower us to imitate this ongoing manifestation. The more we learn God, the better we're able to imitate him. Uh, in Acts 1.8, he says, 
but you shall receive what when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? Power. And what's this power going to do? And you shall be witnesses, right? Now, witness doesn't just mean you learn the four spiritual laws and you go knocking on doors and tell everybody the four spiritual laws. That's good. If you want to do that, feel free. But that's not what witness means. Remember, we've already learned what he means by being his witness is by being an imitation of him in the earth, right? So he's saying you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be able to imitate me and be my witness that God is alive on the earth. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on. And it's exactly what we saw last week in Romans 12, 2. When we were, we were reading, remember in Romans 12, 2, <clears throat> we talked about the two choices we have. And if we will uh, be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by learning to think like Jesus, that we can uh, prove his good and acceptable and perfect will. In other words, uh, if I will let Jesus transform my mind, I become a witness, I become a proof that his ways work better by imitating him, and people watch and go, oh, yeah, uh, I like what happens in Tony's life. It looks like it's because he's gained the mind of Christ, and he's imitating him. He's proving the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's all that same concept, that we, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, are being witnesses, and we have the hope of glory, that I can actually manifest God's glory, God's goodness that I'm learning about through His indwelling Spirit. Now, these are simple statements, uh, but somewhat harder to do, right? So you understand what the goal is. The goal is that through the indwelling Christ, we can have the hope of expressing the glory of Christ that has been manifest in the Son that can now be manifest in us. You guys interested in manifesting the glory of God? Good. I hope so. I, in fact, I, I want you to do that a lot. Manifest the glory of God. Go ahead. Just anytime. <clears throat> anytime you want. Okay. So, going on, that's kind of the basics. I want to go a little deeper into this concept because, of course, the how-tos are interesting. And so, Paul goes on and he says, because we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, in verse 28, he goes, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man that we may present every man perfect in Christ. In other words, we preach him because perfection is in him. Now, we throw that word perfection around uh, like it's just theoretical. Uh, of course, no, you know, no one, we always qualify it. Well, no one's perfect, and like we didn't know. But but Paul's really using this word. He really has a goal to present people as perfected in Christ. So we should look at this a little bit. Now, first off, Paul says, I preach him. I want you to understand that if we're going to uh, aspire to perfection in Christ, it is not the right doctrine. It is not the right religious activities. It is him. It is not some religious uh, I don't know, attitude. It is, Paul says, I'm preaching Jesus. It's Jesus. It's not doing things right or saying things right or praying right or acting right. It's the man, Jesus Christ. Because perfection 
isn't in doing things right or acting right or saying things right. Perfection is in Him. we got to really get that. Perfection is in Jesus. And so Paul says, I preach Him because that's where perfection is. Now, there's two ways to look at this. And so I want to make sure we understand uh, because we want both. And, and we don't want, sometimes we can get hung up on one or the other. There is what I'm going to call imputed perfection. And that looks like this. Uh, I have sinned. And you guys, no one freak out. <laughs> yeah, good. Jesus has forgiven all of my sins. So right now, uh, you know, a meteor comes through the earth or through the whatever, that ceiling, hits me, I die, I go to heaven because I am perfect and I qualify for a perfect heaven because Jesus died for all my sins. That is imputed perfection. I can stand in that perfection right now, at this moment, and so can you, right? Now, that's not, I mean, I don't want to just stop there. I'm glad I'm going to heaven but I have a job while I, before I go to heaven to manifest Christ in the earth, to be his imitation, right? My imitation of Christ, believe it or not, is not yet perfect. You understand? And so, I am being transformed by the renewing of my mind. I am being perfected by entering into him, the perfect one. Not by doing things right, not by saying things right, by getting into the perfect one. That's what Paul's saying. Let me show you this. It's in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and we're going to introduce a word that I really want to visit this morning. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, it says, For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How much fullness? All fullness. Good. Keep that in mind. And you were complete in him. You were made perfect in him. So if I want to be perfect, I got to get in him where all that fullness is and get me some of that. You understand? Get all of it. The more I get, the more I am transformed into the image of Christ. The more I am perfected. The more my imitation of Christ is perfected, right? Which is what he's after. And it's Paul actually seems to think we can do this, right? It's always the goal. Even if we fall short, that doesn't mean we have to lower the bar. It's always the goal to be in him and be perfected. Now, so because we can do this, we get to verse 29, which I find really interesting. Uh, Verse 29, Paul says, to this end, the end is perfection, right? Uh, perfection for him and, and that he would present every man perfect in Christ. So he's not just wanting to be perfect. He wants everybody he knows to be perfect. He says, to this end, I labor, I strive. Does that sound like fun, laboring and striving for perfection? No. So we need to understand this because it's not what we have sometimes thought. It's really easy to get to laboring and striving in ourselves for the perfection of God, and it's just not going to be successful. 
So he says this. He says, I labor and strive according to his working, which works in me mightily. So this is what we need to understand. What does it mean to labor for perfection according to his working, not my working? This sounds good. It's like having lots of work to do in my backyard, and, and someone else comes along. And, and I can get, do, I can labor according to his working. I go, do that, do that, do that. And I go in and sit down at the end of the day and go, whew, I labored <laughs> according to his working and it all got done. It doesn't sound that hard, does it? So we got to learn to do that. What does that mean? Well, this brings me to an interesting conversation. On Wednesday mornings, I go to a prayer meeting over at uh, LifePoint with Troy Robinson and some other pastors. Uh, and we get in an interesting conversation sometime, and I was talking with Troy, and he, he asked this question, he goes, what does it mean? He goes, I'm thinking, I'm pondering what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now, honestly, my first thought was, dude, you're a pastor. You ought to know that one. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, but, but then he, he, he made a couple more statements, and I went, oh, I get what he's pondering now. And then I started to ponder it with him, and we had this conversation. And it ended up being enlightening, and now it's featured in my teaching. So uh, here's where it went. Uh, filled with the Spirit. There's two ways to think about this. Container and conduit. Now, here's what I mean by that. If I hand, give you a five-gallon bucket and say, fill this with water and keep it full, you can go someplace, get some water, put it in there, and you can wander off. You can, you can set it down and wander off. And if it evaporates or some splashes out or ducks come and, you know, do what ducks do, whatever, you can, you can go, up. I'll put a little bit more water in it, that's full and I can wander off. That's a container. And the Bible talks about us being containers, being, being earthen vessels containing the Holy Spirit. So it's easy to think of it that way. Now, if I hand you a hose with a spray nozzle on it and say, I want you to fill this and keep it full, every time I squeeze that handle, I want water to come out. What are you going to do? Someone, someone ought to be able to figure this one out. All right, you're going to hook the other end of the hose to a faucet. And you're going to turn the faucet on. And you're done. And you don't have to come back and check it. You can say, Tony, anytime you squeeze that handle, water will come out. Right? So when God says, be filled with the Spirit, is he talking about a container or a conduit? Because it, it's important. The difference matters. And so let's look at this difference. Because I, I agree with you. I think he's talking about a conduit. And it changes how we respond to God. So let's look at, I'm just looking at three verses uh, real quickly. In John 15, 4 and 5, we learned in John 14, he has made a dwelling place for us in God. He has made a, dwell placing, made a dwelling place in us for God. And then he says in John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you. It sounds like he's talking about the previous chapter. You stay in the dwelling place I made for you in me, and you keep me in your dwelling place, right? Abide me, and I in you. And then he starts to draw a mental picture. He makes an analogy. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And he says, if you, uh, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing, right? So... If I take one of those branches and I cut it off and lay it on the ground, what's going to happen to it? 
dies. It doesn't work anymore. Why? It's being cut off from the flow of the sap or whatever that comes through the vine. So Jesus is saying, uh, in me you bear fruit. Without me you can do nothing. You have to stay connected to the vine. That sounds like conduit to me, doesn't it? Let's look at John 7, 38 and 39, where Jesus says, come to me. He shouts out in the, in the uh, feast, come to me if you're thirsty, and I will cause rivers of living water to flow out of you. And it says in the next verse, specifically that he was talking about the Holy Spirit who was not yet given because Christ was not yet crucified. So the Holy Spirit will be like rivers of living water flowing out of that. Does that sound like a conduit or a container? Conduit. conduit. Keep in mind, living water is not just a throwaway term. It's not like, you know, you put a bottle of water and go, this is, this is you know, I don't know. Uh, what's all the terms we use now? What's the term for it's alive? I'm going blank. Huh? Uh, okay, I can't think of it. Anyway, uh, you know, it's not that just a term on the water bottle to make it sound better. Living water uh, was moving water. In the Old Testament, they had baptisms. It was called a mikvah. Um, and you, they didn't baptize like we baptize. It was not acceptable to just get a pool of water and, want, and you know, wade people in and baptize them. It had to be moving water. That was living water. You had to be baptized in living water. It had to have flow, right? So, sound like conduit or container? Conduit, yeah. And I love Ephesians 5, 18. It says, don't be drunk with wine, we're in his excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, the word there for filled means made complete or made perfect, right? So, be made complete the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm, I have to trust the Greek guys on this because I don't know how the verbs work, but I'm told that the way the verb works is it's continuous. It's, it's literally could be translated, keep on being continually filled, which sounds like what happens when you hook a hose up to a faucet. It just keeps being continually filled with water. So you get what's going on here. It's pretty clear to me that being filled with the Spirit means flow, means conduit, not container. And so what I think Paul is saying is that laboring for perfection according to his working is, hear me now, this is important, just staying connected. I think all Paul is saying is he works mightily in me if I can just stay connected to him. So I labor, I strive to just stay connected to Jesus. Now, that sounds simple, but let's be honest, that's different than periodically filling a container and then wandering off and doing work with it, which we've done, as I've heard it expressed in the church. Oh, I went to a great meeting, and I was full of God, and I went off, and I, and I evangelized, and I did work until I ran out, and then I had to find another good meeting. I had to find the right guy to pray for me and lay hands on me, right? Anyone else ever expressed this or heard this expressed and we fall into this trap of thinking uh, I get some I get some of that fullness in a bucket and I carry it off and I do work in my own strength with my bucket of fullness and then when I run out I find another good meeting or another good pastor to pray for me instead of 
I just stay connected as often and as hard as I can. I just try to stay connected to the source of fullness so that when things come up, he is working through me. I just have to open the faucet. I'm connected. I just have to figure out, all right, something's going on here. See if I can get this faucet open, see what he's doing working in me. Does this make sense? Okay, so it seems like a fine point, but you get how it's a big deal because it's really easy for us to get to laboring for God in our own strength. We're doing stuff for God instead of doing stuff with God. Or instead of just being a conduit for God to do stuff with us, to work in us mightily. Our effort needs to be in staying connected to Him. Him. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we are complete in Him. I just want to stay in Him. That's probably what Jesus was talking about when He said, abide in me. I'm, I'm full of good stuff. You stay in here. Yeah? Okay. Now, understanding that, I do want to talk about fullness a little bit. That, just that word. I like that word. There's a couple other verses I want to look at. The fullness that is in him. Now, we learned that how much fullness is in him? All fullness is in him. Any fullness in you apart from him? No. The only fullness you get is what flows through you from him because it's all in him. Right? You don't get to carry a bucket of fullness off and make it your own fullness. It's his fullness flowing through you. All right, so here's what I've gleaned so far from the verses we've read. All fullness is in him, and that perfects us as we abide in him. Do you agree? Okay, seems pretty clear from Scripture. So, uh, how do we do this? How do we express this fullness? I want to look at a couple of the verses that talk about this. The first one's in Ephesians 3 where Paul seems to suggest that knowing his love is essential to receiving the flow of his fullness. And this makes sense. I can't think of a better synonym for connection than love. If we're going to stay connected to God, who wants to stay connected to someone they're not sure loves them, right? And so it's really important that we know his love. And Paul says this in a prayer in Ephesians 3, verse 19, when he says to know he's praying, that we would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so it's really important that we get in the place of uh, experiencing the love of God so that we can receive his fullness. Simple point. Make sense? Now, here's the bigger point. The church, I believe, is designed to learn about the love of God But I don't think we're designed just for you to learn about the love of God, and you to learn about the love of God, and you to learn about the love of God. It looks to me from the scriptures like we're designed to learn about the love of God together so that we can be filled with the fullness of God. And so I say this because uh, we even sometimes in sharing the gospel will say, you know, the Lord is, you know, the Lord wants to be your personal Savior. And that's true, but it implies that kind of, you know, you get a personal relationship with God, and you and God are on your own, you work it out. Well, no, he's the Savior of the earth, especially of those who believe. That's what it says. It says everybody's Savior, especially of those who believe, which means even if you don't believe, he's your Savior. You just aren't going to experience that until you believe. He paid for everybody. Awesome? So we got to get past, I think, uh, 
on the one hand, yeah, we, we, we have this intimate relationship with God personally that we have to cultivate. But we can do that to uh, the exclusion of cultivating the relationship He wants us to have as a church, and we can miss out on something. And this is what I want you to see. Ephesians 4 is probably the best description we have in the New Testament of what the church is supposed to be. All right? And I'm going to look at verses 13 through 16. Now, what is said in verse 12 as he identifies leadership in the church, the fivefold ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And it says they're here to equip the saints until something happens. How many of you are excited that at some point you won't need pastors? Only me? Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he says these guys are here to this point. And at this point, the church will be good. And, you know, everybody will be able to do this stuff. Well, what's that point? Let's look. It says, until we all come. Now, what does all mean? All. So, uh, no one gets left behind. Everybody in the church is supposed to come to this place. All right? We all come to the unity of the faith. We're united in our faith in Jesus. Let's look at more. Because this kind of describes what that unity of that faith looks like. To the knowledge of the Son of God. We're coming to unity of the faith in the knowledge of Jesus. We're getting to know Him. Not unity of doctrine, not unity of practice. Unity of, we all really want to know Jesus. To a perfect man. Where do we find that? In Him. All the fullness dwells in Him, and you are made perfect in Him. So it says, we've been going into Him so much that we've all come to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We have come together. We have sought the knowledge of the Son of God. We wanted to know Him. We're, we're abiding in Him and becoming perfected in our imitation of Him so that we're coming to the stature of the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ is being manifest in His church because we're knowing Him and uh, perfecting our imitation of Him. Does that make sense from all I've said? You see, you get this kind of mental picture going on. So this is the church. This is the church God's building towards. And then we get a couple other clues here. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. A lot of that going on right now on the earth. But speaking the truth in love, sounds like we're learning how to love together. And we're learning to talk to each other out of a motivation of love. Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head. So we're growing up into something, into Jesus. We're not just growing up in mental maturity. We're growing up into the one in whom all the fullness dwells. Christ from whom, so as we grow up into him, something comes back from him. Almost like connecting a hose to a faucet. All right? We grow up into the head. From him, the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So we're after the fullness of God being expressed. And he says, as we speak the truth in love, as we together grow up into the head, from him begins to come this expression of fullness as we are connected to one another. You guys see that? 
So very simply, have it in your notes, fullness, and by that we mean all of it, all the fullness is in him, none of it's in you except for what came from him. The fullness from the head flows through the connected body. Does everyone see this? It's a simple model. There's fullness in the head as we connect to the head and connect together and get to know him and are being perfected in our imitation of him. His fullness begins to flow through his body, which means we're going to be limited in our ability to express the fullness of God if we aren't striving to stay connected to him and if we aren't connecting to each other. Because uh, if there's something flowing from the head into the rest of your body and I take your arm off, it's not going to get it. Right? It's going to be a useless arm. Does this all make sense? Okay, so that being said, here's where I wanted to go. And this is, believe it or not, what I really feel like God wanted to emphasize this morning. So we have a duality here. We have our individual relationship with God. We have our corporate relationship with God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, don't you know that you're the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? That's for each of you and me. We each are a temple of God with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and that's awesome. But that's not all. That's the individual. There is a corporate indwelling. There is a corporate aspect to this, and I am really excited about this. I have for about I don't know, four or five weeks now, God's been just whispering to me, I'm getting ready to show the church what my corporate indwelling looks like. I'm getting ready to show the church what it looks like for me to indwell the church, not just individuals. He's getting ready to do this. He's starting to do this. Now, I want to show you this in Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, it's talking about a building. So it picks up, it says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In this building, the cornerstone, that everything is made level and plumb to this stone is Jesus Christ. Everything will align to Jesus, right? It says, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom, who's the whom here? Jesus, right? Jesus Christ himself in whom, so in Jesus the whole building is being fitted together. Get this, guys. Somewhere, somehow in the Spirit, in Jesus, God is building a building inside Him, inside the one where all fullness dwells. He's putting together a building in Jesus. In Him, in whom, the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So yes, you're a temple, but yes, there's an aspect where we're a temple where in Jesus, he's building a temple of us. It says, in whom, in Jesus, you also are being built together. Does that sound like Ephesians 4 to you? Every part doing its share, being built together. Uh, there's a parallel passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says that we are living stones being fit together into a spiritual house. You get it? Living stones fit together. The together thing is important. So uh, we got to get over, well, me and God, we do, you know, I'll go here, I'll go there, I'll do that, I'll whatever. I don't have to be connected to the body, I'm connected to Jesus. Got to get over that if you want this. So, in whom you also are being built together for 
a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You get that? Now, it's awesome that each of us individually can be a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. But what God's telling me is we have no idea how awesome it is when He can make a group of people a dwelling place in the Spirit. When He can make His entire church a dwelling place in the Spirit. He has a much greater opportunity to express His fullness in that because each one's doing their share and they're knit together. And we're all going further together. You understand this? This excites me. The potential of the church being a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Here's, here's the thing I want you to get. I have a couple statements here in the end of your notes. I wrote them down so you'd remember them. He will dwell in our midst when we meet together in Him. Now, this in Him is important because we talk a lot about unity and unity in the church, but often when we talk about unity, we're talking about a unity of doctrine or a unity of activity. We're all going to do this thing or a unity of agenda. Jesus doesn't talk about unity like that. He talks about unity in Him. He is the place of unity. It doesn't matter that much if the church all meets together doing the same thing in the same building uh, with the same doctrine, it matters that we meet together in Him where the fullness is. Because no matter how unified we are in purpose, we don't have the fullness unless we meet in the meeting place that's in Him. Does this make sense? This is why worship works the way it does. We all know that most of the time when we experience the deepest presence of the Lord, it's in worship. Uh, that's because, I think, um, well, you know, Psalm 22.3, uh, he says, God inhabits or dwells in or is enthroned in the praises of Israel. Why? Because it's the one time, more than anything else, that we are united and our focus is vertical. We're not focused on each other, we're focused on Jesus. It's what we're doing, very simply, is we're gathering in a room and go, let's all get in Him. Right? And what happens? Jesus goes, I'll, I'll step into the midst of that. I will dwell in that house. I will make that um, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Does this make sense? I don't know how we miss this as a church. And I mean all of us. Uh, but it's, it's very plain. And so God wants to begin to awaken this in us. I love Christ in you, the hope of glory, but what if we just pluralize you? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in his church, the hope of glory. What if all of us meet together in this room and go, we're going to get in him together and see what happens. I'm hoping for glory. I'm hopeful that if we do that, glory will happen. Christ in his church, Christ dwelling in the midst of his church, the hope of glory. There's fullness there, and he wants that fullness to flow through his church. We just have to go in there together. Does this make sense? You want to do it? All right. Van, uh, can you come up and help us? Because, you know, we need help. So let's go back into worship. we got about 20 minutes. And let's just enter into him where all the fullness dwells together with the hope of glory. Sound good?
And, all right, only me. I'm the only one excited about this. Okay. Lord, Lord, we want your glory expressed in the earth. We want your fullness expressed in the earth. Or we want to learn how to imitate you in the earth. So, Father, we just ask that you would start in this room as we just come into your presence and worship you. Lord, we say we hope to see your glory. Show us your glory. We are coming together into you, into your fullness. Lord, show us your glory. Just like Moses said, show us your glory. Show us your goodness. Give us a revelation so that we can express your goodness in the earth. Lord, make this place a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Lord, make us a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Lord, come. Make us a dwelling place. Dwell in us. Dwell in this room with us, Lord. 